It is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bibles uh, to the book of 1 Peter. We'll be in chapter 5 this morning. If you didn't bring a Bible with you to church today, we have one provided for you in the pew ahead of you. We'll be on, I think, page 1017 of the Pew Bible. And if you are uh, not in possession of a Bible at home, please uh, just take that one as a gift. 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning at verse 12. I'm going to uh, read through the, the end of this uh, glorious letter. We're finishing up our Elect Exiles series this morning. And um, then I'll pray and uh, get to work in looking at what it is that First Peter has done in our lives and what I'm praying that it would continue to do in our lives. First Peter chapter 5, beginning at verse 12. Welcome to read along with me. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, I don't know all that you've done in my life and in the life of my people over these last seven months through the letter that was written by your servant, Peter. Whatever it is, Master, would you bring it to completion? Would you continue to do the work of the Holy Spirit in our life and bearing fruit through this wonderful letter. Would you do again what you have done so often throughout this letter? Open our ears that we might hear. Open our eyes that we might see. Equip our hands to serve and our feet to follow such that your son would take great praise, great glory, and great honor in the effect that this letter has had on our lives. Do it again amongst us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We started... Elect Exiles, this series in First Peter in, on April 3rd of this year, which means, as I said, it's been about seven months in this letter, and I, I have to say it has been my sincere joy <clears throat> to serve you as we've attempted to understand what it is that the Lord has spoken to us here in First Peter. It has been my practice over the last several months to be praying this letter over you. And I'm hopeful 
that the Lord will produce God-honoring, Christ-exalting fruit in your life in the months and in the years ahead after having spent so much time meditating and reading in this, this letter. Our Lord and uh, His gospel is, in, in the word, it's, it's like a jewel that the longer you stare at it, the more beautiful it becomes. And so I know not everyone is accustomed to taking such a long time in one book of the Bible. Uh, not everyone does it like we do it. But there's just something to be said for marinating in one book for a long period of time. There's something lost when you walk through a woods at a brisk pace. So um, I've, it has been an honor and a privilege to be able to do this over the last several months. And, I, and I'm, I'm eager to see what the Lord has created and will continue to create in us through the, these last seven months. So thank you for spending this time with me in First Peter. Before we get too deep into uh, what the Lord has for us this morning, I would like to say something to my tech team, to Steve and Bonnie and to Todd. Just so you know, they have worked tirelessly and faithfully week after week to ensure that you have a catalog of resources available to you from First Peter. By about the middle of every week, you are able to go to our website uh, to download our podcast or go to our YouTube channel and to stream the previous week's sermon. And from these channels, you have the ability to reference any single passage in the book of First Peter and to find its meaning and application as best as we could communicate it. And this is something that these three people and some others have done for you. And so will you put your hands together and just say thank you to these three Thank you so much. My intention this morning is, uh, with God's help, uh, to highlight five graces from the Lord through First Peter that have or will establish God-honoring and Christ-exalting stability in your life and your walk with the Lord Jesus. Five graces for standing firm in your faith. Beginning right here in, in verse 12 down to 14, but we're going to glean one thing from the, these three verses, and uh, then we're going to return to other parts of the letter and to see some of the highlights from First Peter. And uh, five graces that I see in this letter for standing firm, a legacy of faithfulness. Recently, I have taken a liking to the word plodding. Earlier this summer, I, I was preparing for our Excellencies in Christ service, and I gave a talk on the legacy of a man named William Carey, who was a missionary to India in the 19th century. And in many ways, Carey was a pioneer for modern missionary movements and to the unreached. Mr. Carey was used in remarkable ways in Bible translation and in reaching the unreached, and he's left a lasting impact. And, 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 and somebody asked him towards the end of his ministry, what, what was the thing that gave him such success in, in, in the unreached in India? And this is what Carey replied, if a man give me credit for being a plodder, he will describe me justly. Anything beyond that will be too much. I can plod. 
I can persevere in any definite pursuit to this. I owe everything. And then about a month ago, Kevin DeYoung, who's a pastor and a blogger in Michigan, he wrote a short article on the glory of plotting. I've shared it with some, some of you. He wrote this in that article. The best churches are full of gospel-saturated people holding tenaciously to a vision of godly obedience and God's glory and pursuing that godliness and glory with relentless, often unnoticed, plodding consistency. Plodding. So much of the Christian walk is about plodding. And so what do we need to plod We need stability. We need solid footing. We need deep rootedness in the gospel. We need to stand firm. The Lord has provided grace for us in 1 Peter 4, standing firm. And so this is where we will look first. Grace to stand, 1 Peter chapter chapter 5, verse 12 and following. Basilvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peter calls Silvanus a faithful brother. He calls Mark his Son, he offers greetings from an unnamed sister in Babylon, which is probably a code word for Rome. Notice here the familial, communal language of these passages. Peter is telling the church to greet one another with a kiss of love. Greet one another with a kiss of love. So maybe the welcome team needs to revisit their approach to greeting people as they come in. Ten ways to keep your church from growing ever. (laughs) Kiss everyone when they walk in. The kiss of love was probably a, a cultural sign of mutual respect, and it is still used in many parts of the world today. The point is that community was vital to the early church. Community was vital to early Christianity. God's people are a family. The word brother in the New Testament, the one that's used there in verse 12, is used over 340 times in the New Testament. And most of the times it is used, it is referred to fellow believers, spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ. Peter calls Mark his son. Paul calls Timothy his son. When you became a Christian, you were adopted into the family of God. Your faith, family, your church, this church is a family. These are your brothers and sisters. And so, this is God's grace to you. A family. Notice also in these verses, there's something else working in here. The Apostle Peter seems to just assume that the recipients of this letter will come together and they will read the letter and they will attempt to understand the letter and they will be encouraged by it. 
Verse 12, these exhortations and these declarations are the grace of God to them. And he just assumes everyone is going to read it. It's like this throughout the New Testament. The New Testament epistles, the writers of the New Testament, they just assume that what they write to the recipients will be read among the churches. Which means that they will gather together in some organized fashion under leadership and they will read what the New Testament authors have written and they will attempt to understand what has been written. It seems that this is how grace is delivered by the church being gathered through the teaching and through fellowship. The New Testament knows nothing of Christians who live without regular gatherings with other Christians for fellowship and Bible teaching. We were meant to gather and to, to, to be taught the scriptures and to pray together and to praise the Lord together and to be encouraged as the local church. So if you are a member of this church, of this faith family, your church family should expect to see you on a fairly regular basis. Not to say you can't miss a Sunday here and there, but your brothers and sisters in Christ ought to have reason to expect to see you on a Sunday morning as we gather to hear the Word of God preached. Church attendance ought to be a priority. Part of church membership requires that you would, are to know one another, which is not possible unless you are together regularly. Church family is a true grace from God, and we are to stand firm in it. So, as we go back now and look through the rest of the letter, we're going to jump around to a number of verses in, in your Bible. So, just stay there in First Peter. We're going to bounce back and forth. We're going to look for four more graces to stand firm. The next one. God is sovereign. If you have your Bible open, you're welcome to turn it back to chapter 1 of First Peter. From the very first opening words that Peter wrote to these elect exiles, we see a, an emphasis on the sovereignty of God over all things, specifically two things throughout the letter, specifically God being sovereign over salvation and God being sovereign over suffering. The reason this series that we've had here is called Elect Exiles, comes from the very first verse in, the, in, in this letter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. And then verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctifi- sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So, Peter says... You are elect exiles. The word elect means chosen. You were chosen by God to be exiles. Question is, on the basis of what? What did God base his choosing on? Why did God look at me and decide, I'm going to choose him to be an exile? And the question, I think, is answered in verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father... Now, there are some folks who are not fans of words like elect, foreknown, or predestined, but these are Bible words. 
Peter says that God elected these people according to his foreknowledge. So whatever we take that to mean, it means that God is making choices. He is orchestrating events towards his purposes and accomplishing his will. And then Peter continues to employ similar language in verse 3, where he says, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. To be born again means to be made a Christian, to be born again. So who is active in verse 3? Who is this person causing us to be born again? Is the one with great mercy. He is the one who is acting and causing life and creating Christians. And let's skip down to verse 5. By God's power, you are being guarded by faith for a salvation. Again, who is the active agent in verse 5? Who's doing the guarding? Certainly it is God active in these verses. So here in the first five verses of 1 Peter, the apostle is telling that we are God's elect exiles, that God has foreknown us, that God has saved us, and that God is keeping us. In other words, God is is sovereign over salvation. He is the engine and the fuel for salvation taking spiritually dead people and bringing them to life. But that is not all God is sovereign over. Keep on reading. Verse 6. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter seems to indicate that God is also active during grievous trials. So it could be said that God is sovereign over suffering. Do you believe that? That your God wills suffering? Turn to chapter 3, verse 17. 1 Peter 3, 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. If that should be God's will. Skip down to chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Again, with this trial thing. But here Peter says, this trial is a test. Which means if there are test takers, then there has to be a test giver. So who's giving the test? And the answer is spelled out in verse 19 of the same chapter. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will 
entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So I hope that throughout this letter it has become clear that God is not only sovereign over salvation, but God is also sovereign over suffering. Which begs the question, how is that a grace? (laughs) How is that going to cause me to stand firm? How is it going to help me plod? And the answer to that is implicit throughout the whole letter. You have a God who has elected you, a God who has brought you through suffering, and you have a God who will bring you into glory. This is why we are told to entrust our souls to Him. He is a faithful creator. He is trustworthy. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He will always be there for us and with us. I told you last week that the Lord Jesus spilled His own blood to save you and your God does not gamble on souls. Without a God who is sovereign over salvation and suffering, we would have a God who would be a worrywart, pacing the halls of heaven, hoping for the best, hoping that Wellman would pull through in the end and come to glory. But that's not the God that the Scripture describes. The God the Scripture describes in Romans 8 is this. Those whom God called, God also justified. And those whom God justified, God glorified. Now, I'm looking around this room and I see many justified Christians. But I don't see a single glorified Christian. And so how is it that the Apostle Paul can say those whom he has justified, he has glorified? That's past tense. But it hasn't happened yet. Because he's speaking of God. Because you have a God who can speak of future events in past tense. He can say this because his God is sovereign. Isaiah 14, 24, we read it at the opening. The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. As I have purposed, so shall it stand. This is why the sovereignty of God over salvation and suffering is a grace to us. Because he will have his will. He will have his way. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Not hopeful. That means you and I can take risks. God glorifying risks for the sake of the gospel. We can put all our eggs in one basket. We can entrust our souls to a faithful Creator, because He is able to bring His will to pass in our life. This cornerstone is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. 
the next grace. Turn back to chapter 2. Grace to stand a great God chose you for a great purpose. 1 Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. God saved you by grace, and God is sanctifying you through suffering. But for what? Why would He do it like this? Why don't you spare me the suffering? Just save me and take me to glory. Why go through the trouble? Why do you have to put me into situations that you have to deliver me out of? Just take me to heaven. Why would God will heartbreak, persecution, loss, affliction? Here's the answer. You're a chosen race. You're God's people. You're His possession. You see, God did not save you for you. You're pretty great and all. You really are. But God did not save you for you. God saved you for him and for them. That you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You were saved by God through the proclamation of the gospel for the proclamation of the gospel. You were saved through the proclamation of the gospel for the proclamation of the gospel that you might proclaim. I know we like to think that we are an end of God's work, but the reality is that we are a means for God's work. He means to use you to proclaim the gospel where you are and where he might send you. We must begin to see our life's work as gospel work. That wherever you work, you are God's means of proclaiming the excellencies of Christ there. Wherever you live, whatever neighborhood he has you, you are meant to proclaim the excellencies of Christ there. If you are a mother of children, that work is gospel work, discipling tiny hearts for the glory of God. Wherever you are, whoever listens to your voice, you were meant to proclaim Jesus. God saved you for a bigger purpose than for yourself. And this means our lives are so much bigger than accumulating big things and nice retirement. I'm jealous to see God's people see their life's work as gospel work in whatever season or situation God has them in. 
to begin starting businesses and earning money to take that money and fund the advance of the gospel among the nations. To be the best employee where you work. To make as much as you can to fund the advance of the gospel in the nations. To live for something so much bigger than ourselves. And so if we can't draw a straight line from what we do day in and day out to the advance of the gospel, local and global, then we may need to rethink our priorities. I'm going to say that again because I want it to sting. If we can't drive, draw a straight line from what we do day in and day out, through our life's work, to the advance of the gospel among the nations, we might need to rethink priorities. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, God's own people, meant to proclaim God's own love for a people who hate him. And there's grace to stand in this. There are over 2 billion people who have never heard the gospel. There are billions more who think that they have. The work is great. The laborers are few. But God has saved you to be the select ones that he has chosen to carry the mission of God to the ends of the earth. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Next one. Chapter 2, still, let's go to verse 24. This comes on the coattails of our previous purpose. Our great God has given us a great purpose, and that great purpose requires great holiness. 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself, that's our Lord Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin And live to righteousness. When I was preparing this morning's sermon, I sat down and I was going to go through every single verse in the book of 1 Peter that mentions holiness and holy living. And I'm afraid we would have run out of time. It's all over this book. These elect exiles are being told, you've been called by God for a specific purpose. Your God is holy, therefore you shall be holy in all of your conduct. For as he who is holy, so you shall be holy. Because we are God's people, we must be holy. We must live our lives in a way that is markedly different from the world. Peter keeps calling these elect exiles out to be different. With the way you live, with your priorities, with how you treat your spouse, with how you, with how you speak, you be different. You carry the name of Christ. True Christians hate their sin. They leverage energy to war against it in their life. Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. That's what sin cost your God. That's how much your God hated to see sin in his people. 
He would spill the blood of his own son to get sin off of you. We ought to hate our sin as much as that. We should hate the effects of sin in our life, hate the effects of sin on the affections, how it affects our affections for Christ. We should hate how our sin affects our kids, our spouse, our co-workers. We should hate it and war against it. We must be committed to lives of holiness. Jesus died to make us holy. Not to give us a license to sin. But to give us freedom from it. And the power to overcome sin and temptation is in the cross of Jesus Christ. Because of the cross, we don't need to turn to alcohol or drugs to get us through difficult times. Because Jesus died to bring us to God and he'll get us through. Because of the cross, we can forgive our enemies, those who have sinned against us. Because when we sinned against him, he didn't retaliate against us. But he gave himself up for our sake to forgive us of our sins. And so that empowers us to forgive others when they sin against us. We can do good to those who offer us nothing in return. Because Jesus did good to us when we had nothing to offer him in return. We can love the unlovely because your God loved you when you were unlovely. The cross empowers holiness. There's grace there. Stand firm in it. Last one. First Peter chapter 5, verse 10. First Peter 5.10, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. We won't spend a lot of time on this last one. It was the main, one of the main points from last week, and it was the memory verse that you had for last week. But God has prepared eternal rewards for his people, for their faithfulness. In chapter 4, Peter told us that there are reasons to rejoice in suffering. We know that our God sees us as we suffer faithfully for his sake, and he rewards that faithfulness. We may not receive that reward in this life, and in all likelihood we won't receive it in this life. but we are promised those rewards in the next. The Apostle Paul wrote that we shouldn't even consider the present sufferings to be worth comparing to the afflictions or compared to the glory that's going to be ours when we come to glory. I take this to mean that if we could see what level of glorious reward that God has for our faithfulness amid persecution and affliction, we would be astounded at the grace of God to do it like this. 
As Christians, we ought to live with one eye on the mission and one eye in heaven with God. We should set our mind on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father. This world is not our home. And we should, we should be uncomfortable here. I think we should be uncomfortable with being comfortable here. What do you suppose the Lord Jesus meant when he said, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life? I mean, how often we really thought about what it means to hate our life in this world. Things are, things are in turmoil right now in our country, politically speaking. And if this has unsettled you in a profound way, then maybe you should rethink your priorities. Our identity ought not to come from this country. We are not meant to be at home here. We are not primarily citizens of this country, but of a heavenly city. We, Peter says we are sojourners. We are pilgrims. We're passing through. There's much work to be done here, much good things that can be done in this country for the glory of God's name, but it should not trouble us to see what's going on in the world. It should motivate us to pray, to do work, and to serve the advance of the gospel. I think you know that. I think you know the hope for this country is not in who gets elected, but the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we should not be surprised that things do not work down here as they should. We shouldn't be surprised by it. We should be motivated by it. It should bring us to our knees in prayer. But it shouldn't mess up our day. We should do what we can to change what we can through the proclamation of the gospel. God has chosen us as his own. He has given us his purpose. And we are living for his mission. In this world, Cornerstone, we're invaders. We are unwelcomed guests. The kingdom of this world, under the influence of our enemy, will rage against us and our message. They will malign us, they will mistreat us, and they will make us their enemies. And we will suffer, but we will endure. And none of this should surprise anyone. Because, dear Cornerstone, we are exiles, elect exiles. Let's pray. Father, it has been your grace on us to give us this letter. I thank you 
that when we endure suffering and affliction and mistreatment for carrying your name and for proclaiming your gospel, that we don't have to wonder about what it means and we don't have to wonder what your involvement is because you have given us this letter and we can go to chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 and we can see your hand at work in sanctifying your people for the sake of your glory and for the effective witness of your mission and your gospel in the earth. Would you create a legacy in us of entrusting our souls to a faithful creator while doing good in a world that doesn't want us, in a world that doesn't like us, but in a world that desperately needs the message from us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand to your feet? I'd like to end our service together rereading a passage. And I want to give you the opportunity to reflect on what God has shown you throughout First Peter. And uh, time to repent. If there's any sin in your life that you must confess, I want to give you an opportunity to confess those sins. We're going to sing one more song. And during that song, if you want to sing, that's great. But I would, I would like that you would take a time and... Focus on Jesus. Confess sins in your life. The Lord's table is open. You're welcome to take communion if you like. But I just want to read one verse, which is, I think, the summary verse of First Peter as we leave First Peter for now. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good.